Greetings, my friends. My next guest is an intrepid explorer of worlds physical and metaphysical. A spiritual philosopher and psychonaut that has traversed mystical schools ranging from Freemasonry to Native American shamanism. His name is R.E. Kretz, and he has returned from his forays into the fantastic with secret treasures to share. Today we're talking about his book, The Alchemical Search for the Unified Field, Pythagorean, Hermetic, and Shamanic Journeys into Invisible and Ethereal Realms. The book is as ambitious as it sounds, containing a truly baffling array of fascinating information and insights. It's dense with information and warrants multiple readings and close study. More than anything else, it digs into seemingly random and sometimes baffling spiritual practices and explains where the concepts came from and what their ancient forgotten purposes were supposed to be. So, let's get into it. With no further ado, here's my conversation with R.E. Kretz. Well, and that, that's the whole premise, you know, is a lot of folks, they're interested, uh, they don't understand, you know, and they are told they have to do things, but not why. Right. You know, they don't understand the operational mechanics behind it. So that was the premise of my book. Say, hey, okay, this is really how it works and why you have to do the things that you're doing. And right, then right. Once you understand that, you can practice it and benefit from it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's perfect, man. So now we can just get right into it. Because what I wanted to say for the introduction to the, the interview is that I read books in the esoteric philosophical field, however you want to phrase it, all the time. I get sent books by publishers asking me to interview their get or their authors. And uh, man, there are a few books that I have found that have the, the scope, the pure scope and ambition of this book. It's, it's truly, I'm saying this for the benefit of the, the viewers and the listeners. Like it's, it's truly astounding. And um, it's not a huge book, but uh, I'm a relatively intelligent guy. And I'm going to have to return to this multiple times. I, I mean that in a good sense, because there's so much information in this and in the paper that you shared. The paper is phenomenal. But um, before we get into this, I want to read one passage from your book for the audience's benefit, because I think it's, it's beautifully written. And I think it gives a good um, intro into the spirit of this book, because even though it's technically demanding and kind of philosophically demanding, there's a lot of heart in it. It's it, it's obvious what you're trying to do is you the I can feel your intent of trying to open the doors for people and get people to step into this other world. And um in just this passage. So page 125. There is a flower growing high up on a mountain. This mountain is steep and it is dangerous. This mountain is sacred. She is old and has a strong spirit. She will test you harshly. You must show her respect. You must show her that you are brave and strong of spirit. If you are strong of spirit and respect her, she may share her secrets. Many have gone to this mountain. Few survive her. Fewer still return to sing their tales of exploration and adventure. If you are duly and truly prepared in your heart, then go. Go to this mountain. Seek this flower. And then... The preceding paragraph, before you begin, turn your gaze inward, ask yourself, what is it I seek? Why do I seek it? How will I recognize it? Where might I find it? What will I do with it? Visualize your answer, picture it in your mind. So I just, I love that passage. And I thought it's, um, for any viewers out there, anybody wants to check out this book that is more technically demanding than most of the stuff coming out. I think that passage just gives a great example of, um, 
why it's worthwhile and the heart behind it because it's not just all technical stuff right so um in to the viewers when i say the scope of this book is extraordinary because it's not even just about alchemy it's not even just about shamanism you go into enlightenment what the what the real third eye is um time travel uh uh paris was a paris um panspermia <laughs> it's incredible yeah. man so so that's I, that's my intros i want people to get into this man so um now could you please give a little bit um i know this is difficult because it's such a broad book but the core thesis the core spirit of the book could you could you elucidate that a little bit well in a nutshell really what i'm trying to do is exemplify a union of opposites well, what do i mean by that well you know we have we're left brain and right brain uh, left brain is usually considered the masculine aspect right brain is is feminine and when we're practicing occultism or esoteric stuff you know we try to get really technical and that's what you find in the second part of the book when I'm discussing alchemy, it's very technical. It's very left brain. It's masculine. But then when we shift gears and we go to the third part of the book and discuss shamanism, it's very nature oriented. Um, it's right brain. It's very feminine. And the whole idea that if we really want to attain a higher level of consciousness, enlightenment is the word people like to focus on. Uh, we have to have that union of opposites. So it's just like an electrical system. And that's why I discuss meditation. Because within an electrical system, you have your hot lead. You've got your, uh, oh, I'm having a brain cramp here. Uh, <laughs> the black wire, the white wire. And then you have a green wire, which is your neutral. It takes everything to ground. So you've got positive, negative, and ground. And that's how our nervous system works. It's how our brain works. You know, left and right hemispheres of the brain are positive and negative. The spinal cord where our ganglia are is a neutral. It's the ground. And it runs from our brain stem all the way down to our coccyx. And as we had been discussing previously, you know, as an electrical circuit, if you're going to meditate properly to benefit from it, that's why we have to be grounded, sitting on, on the ground directly or in a straight back chair, barefooted, so that we are receiving the benefits of being grounded, that our body's electrical circuit is able to close and be complete. And therefore, we can begin to harmonize using a mantra or a prayer. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, you know, in that part about the shaman, we're going to come back to the part about the, the shamanism in the in the mountain, because that's just some beautiful stuff. Man, I love your, your relationship there. And it's, it's really neat stuff. But so one of the driving forces for you was your time in Freemasonry, correct? And you you came to understand that a lot of these people, most of these people didn't know why they were doing anything that they did. And that this is kind of something that expands out into just um the alternative spiritual sphere, esoteric, whatever you want to call it. People are doing things without understanding why. And uh, that was like a motivation for this book, right? Very much. That was the inspiration for the book, really, the motivation, in that uh, 
whether it's within masonry, uh, another esoteric uh, initiatic order, uh, folks that are just interested in the occult or whatever, uh, they will go through rituals. They will do things in a certain way, uh, hoping to attain an end through that means, uh, whether it's actually performance of actions or it is a chant, you know, saying specific words in a certain way. Um, those things are great. But if you don't have that understanding of why you're doing it, you know, what are the operational mechanics behind it? So how is it working? How is saying a certain prayer or, or doing some ritualistic actions going to invoke an outcome? Um, that's what I was trying to explain. And I had so many questions when I first went into Freemasonry. You know, I was like a lot of other folks. I figured, well, you know, I'm going to go in the Freemasons and yeah, it's all this hocus pocus stuff. You know, I'm going to learn all these great secrets and it's going to be fantastic, you know, really cool. <laughs> and I get in there and there's these guys that are truly ancient, you know, that, you know, are in, in their 70s and 80s. And that's wonderful. I have a lot of respect for them. But they were very entrenched in their attitudes, beliefs, and values in the way they had done things and quite inflexible. And so they, they weren't really open to change. They weren't open to being questioned. And part of the reason behind that discomfort was they didn't have the answers. They didn't know themselves. So, you know, I got really frustrated. And you'll find a, a lot of young guys will get involved in masonry just like I did, you know, hoping that they're going to really learn something special. And in a pretty short time, they're disappointed and they don't go back. So my idea was that if I had all these questions and these challenges, you and your audience and so many other people out there were experiencing the same thing. So where do, who's going to provide the answers to them? Well, it was up to me. I'd spent many years, you know, researching and trying to find out what are these secrets, understanding symbolism, understanding allegory, and, and trying to bring it all together to say, okay, well, here's the tip of the iceberg. You know, so if you're traveling this path, at least now you have a little bit of light. Mm -hmm. You have the beginnings of the understanding for the operational mechanics of how this has worked. The way that, you know, our forebearers thought, you know, what was the rationale behind all this? And it's not just that it's supposed to work. It's actually, how does it work? And mm -hmm. if we're not following the right procedures, we don't have an understanding of it, then how can we derive any benefit if we're doing it incorrectly? Does that make sense to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so a, a core part of the, the book is the, the it's basically the four essential uses of the Philosopher's Stone and um, or what the Philosopher's Stone actually was. And um, in one of those was meditation, 
right? As 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 a, mm-hmm. the pathway to enlightenment. Could you expand on that one a little bit for people who haven't read the right. book? Right. Well, what the alchemical search for the unified field touches on is only one aspect of the philosopher's stone. As you've mentioned, there are what I've been able to discern are four other aspects of it. I don't delve into those in this book. All I'm looking at is using the philosopher's stone uh, as a vehicle to attain a higher level of consciousness. So again, you know, we're looking at the body as an electrical system, but what is the stone itself? And we have to know what the stone is in order to be able to understand how that applies alchemically to our bodies. Um, So this is where enlightenment comes from, spirituality. uh, And the alchemical connection uh, that is driving this is that within alchemy, what we're doing is we take a substance, for example, lead. Only it's not pure lead. It has to be galena, which is a lead ore that contains impurities. So the idea is that we would take our galena, we put it in the caratacus, which is like a double burner, and we burn off all the impurities from this galena. And it's going to, you know, vent out some poisonous or noxious gases. And there's going to be some additional substances so that hopefully at the end of the process, we find that we have the element of lead. The byproducts of the process uh, form an oxidized bullion on the lead itself that contains silver and trace amounts of gold. And that has to be distilled in order to recover it. That's alchemy in a nutshell. Um, So we're doing the same thing spiritually with our bodies when we're meditating. What we have to do is try to burn off our ego, Mm -hmm. all the superfluities of life, to get rid of all those impurities. And that's how we are trying through meditation to become better than we once were. Because through meditation, it helps to, if you're using a mantra or a chant or using a a form of a prayer, what we're trying to do is harmonize our mind, body, and spirit. And so, again, it's the same thing as if you're looking at the alchemical process. We're trying to divest ourselves of these impurities so that we can become purer and ultimately better than we were, you know, before that we even began. So that's why meditation plays an important role within the alchemy. Hmm. And do you, do you think it's specifically the, um, the meditations from the alchemical tradition or say transcendental meditation, which both of you and I are share, uh, we, we were both TM meditators. Um, do you think that that applies to other forms of meditation or is it specifically the alchemical approaches? Well, it does apply to the other, you know, uh, techniques and forms of meditation. What I was just sharing is the background of how it actually works, the the operational mechanics of it. Uh, and it doesn't really matter, you know, what your uh, what technique that you're going to employ to meditate. It's 
a process that's involved. It's just like in alchemy. It doesn't matter so much whether you're using uh, a copper vessel or a glass vessel, as long as the process and the procedures remain the same. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And the um, and so there's also the part where you talk about the third eye being the where the two hemispheres of the brain, like the the alignment. And I don't want to try to explain it. Can you explain the um, what you say about the third eye? Because it's a part of your book. It's it's a smaller part. It's not one of the the core aspects, but it was something I found very interesting. Right. Well, it's a very important part to understand. Because, again, our body is an electrical system, and it's controlled by our mind, okay, our brain, which has left and right hemispheres. And that's kind of like the, the brain is like the motherboard. But on the motherboard of that computer, we have what's called a harmonic generator. And in the case of the brain, people, you know, nonchalantly refer to it as the third eye without really understanding what the third eye is. It's not just the pineal gland. That's only one part of it. It's a trend. It's a triad. You have the pineal gland, the pituitary gland, and the thalamus. And they each function a little bit differently. And when I refer to a harmonic generator, you have a capacitor, you have a resistor, and uh, an inductor. And that relates to our functionality as thought, decisions, and emotions. So, you know, again, that's kind of like a circuit within our electrical circuit because they're constantly seeking balance. You know, before we make a decision and take action, you know, we're getting this feedback, you know, emotionally through our thought processes, mm. you know, so, that's how the, how that actually works, you know. So your emotions feed into your thought process, you know, where it's kind of filtered, and then we act, decide, or act upon that. So again, that's that's what the third eye really does. And when we're meditating, what we're trying to do is harmonize, get the vibration within using a mantra or a prayer uh, to. Get the vibration in our mind so that these aspects of our, our brain begin to resonate. And as they resonate, that helps to align our mind with our body and therefore our spirit. And again, from an alchemical or symbolic perspective, that's why we see like on the symbol of Philosopher's Stone, you'll see the triangle in the center. And that represents our third eye, of course, and we see that in many symbol representations. But then around that, oftentimes you'll see a circle, which represents our spirit. Sometimes, and the correct way, is that within or outside of that uh, circle containing the triangle is a square. So alchemically, you'll hear references to squaring the circle. The square represents our body. The spirit is represented by the circle and our mind is represented by the triangle. Mm -hmm. So what you're finding here in that symbol is that the circle, which is never ending, is binding our mind to our body. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Fascinating, man. Thank you. It's a question that I always pops into my mind um, when I'm reading texts that talk about this lost wisdom and this lost understanding is why? Like, how did it get to this point? Because the things that you're saying now, you studied these um, these teachings, which are already esoteric, but even the people who were studying them didn't fully understand them. So you went and dove down and really tried to understand what what are these actually saying in a, a pragmatic sense, and um, which is what's so fascinating about your book. But I, I always like end up asking myself, how did we arrive? Like, if if this knowledge, this wisdom, is so important, which I agree that it is, how did we lose it? Like, how did we get to this point where where somebody has to do a deep dive and bring it back for us and explain it to us? Over the years, um, how was it lost? Well, a lot of it, and I'm just going to be very blunt, has to do with institutional agendas. And I would prefer not to go down that rabbit hole. Okay. okay. Uh, uh, no, yeah, but, that's, it, uh, but you understand where I'm coming from. Right, right. But yeah, and I, I yeah, don't want to push you into conspiratorial territory, so I understand your hesitance. Yeah. But, but yeah, I, I was generally but, uh, wondering what you thought about it. Yeah, so I mean, if you're asking why it was lost, yeah, it's because you know institutional agendas uh, control the hearts and mind of men, and folks inherently will do what someone whom they respect or feel is authoritative, you know, insists that they do, you know, they will believe what they're told to believe, you know, and, you know, as that continues on, we find that it's a a matter of programming or indoctrination. So I'll leave it at that. Right. Yeah. No, understandably, I, I get it. And I was actually hesitant. I was like, hey, do I want to ask him this question? I, it wasn't so long ago, I wouldn't even hesitate. But now we've reached such a strange point in history. It's like I understand people's hesitation to get into anything of that sort. But um, so, all right. So there's also the oblong square. Mm-hmm. Could, could you discuss that a, a little bit? Because um, that's, that's some wild stuff about the uh, the sarcophaguses and such. Yeah, um, and, and that's one of these little gems that's a, a secret that's hidden. Uh, and again, it, it also incorporates sacred geometry uh, in order to figure it out. And it's referred to in masonry. Uh, I believe it's in the inner apprentice degree. And we could describe it in that regard. But it, it's kind of very vague. There's no clear-cut answer as to what this oblong square is Hmm. so you know and that's one of the questions i had when i first entered mason well what is this thing you know and you're told well yeah it's it's the lodge and it's in the ritual you know well it's not really (laughs) here or the lectures but you know no one can really explain what it was so in my investigations i've discerned that there's three variations of it uh one variation of an oblong square is if you take two squares that and join them, and that way the sides have a two-to-one ratio. So it would be an oblong, but it's comprised of, of squares. Um, another version is, I'm having a bit of a brain cramp here, so bear with me. No problem. Um, yeah, I'm forget, I forget off 
top of my head what the second one is. It'll come to me here probably once we move past it. Yeah. But, but the one that uh, most folks that you can find representations of, it, it's interesting in that you find, again, within masonry, reference to a point within a circle. Everything begins at that point. So if you take a piece of paper and you draw a circle around the point where you can take a pair of dividers or compasses and inscribe a circle, you will have this point in the center of it. If you take on either side of that circle and inscribe squares so that the perimeter of those circles intersect the point of the first one, you find that you've got now three circles and two vishapices. What you do at that point is you put a square around that center circle and erase the internal part of it, okay? And what you'll find is it looks just like a racetrack. Like if you're going to college or high school, you go out to the track, it'll look just like that, okay? It, it creates a racetrack formation. Well, what I found interesting is that if you're looking at the cartouches of, in, of uh, ancient Egypt, they all use this oblong square formation. And generally speaking, the bottom portion of that oblong square is squared off. It's, you know, it's cut off. It's not rounded. And that's what the cartouches look like. Um, and in, Curiously, I found that if you're looking at the ground plans for the ancient cathedrals, uh, for example, like uh, Notre Dame in Paris or Chartres, their floor plan uses this same model. And it's actually the same premise or same idea if you're looking at uh, a Shiva Lingam stone from India. Mm -hmm. it, it's all the same formation. Uh, so then, you know, I get into it and I discuss it in more greater detail within the book. But that's just an overview of really what it is. And I still can't recall what that second variation is off the top of my mind. I wish I could because I just I read the book again this morning as I was taking my notes. And unfortunately, I don't remember it either. But there, there's a, yeah, that's really interesting stuff you talk about in there and including actually, no, this was in the paper, not in the book where the, the discussion yeah. about time travel. Right. Right, that's in the in the separate paper. Hmm. Okay, which is yeah. something I'm I'm investigating that goes well above and beyond what's in the book here. Right, uh, because uh, it involves uh, quantum physics, mathematics, and all that kind of good stuff. Right. No. Yeah, that's fascinating, man. I'll be looking forward. Do you plan on Do you plan on doing another book on that topic, or it will be? I'm looking at incorporating it into another book mm, okay. actually it'll be a book on the templars uh, because it does have an application oh really yeah oh man that'll be fascinating stuff that'll, yeah that'll be really good stuff so um i is actually i in my mind i've twisted up some of your paper with the book which i apologize for because as i'm looking at my questions i realize i've got them twisted up a little bit but um you, what you mentioned no actually what i would like to go into so in my experience, people who are interested in these topics tend to branch in one or two ways. They go that like shamanistic way, which is more of like a natural intuitive connection with the spirit world. And as you referred to it earlier, um, 
more of the feminine side. And then you have people who gravitate more towards like the, the ritual side of things. And they tend to be more in, it's my experience, more analytical. And the, the two worlds don't really overlap. And a lot of times they are in conflict with each other. Um, like I've talked to some people from that more ritualistic um, intellectual side who think shamanism is basically a bunch of nonsense. Um, but you, your book, a very interesting thing about it is that you, you go into both worlds and you discuss them as just two sides of the same or two faces of the same coin. And so can you go a little bit into the story of your, your shamanistic experience um, in the mountains, which is a, a really beautiful part of your book? I'd be glad to. What would you like to know? Um, well, could you just uh, tell a little the, the basic backstory of it for the people who haven't uh, uh, read the book yet? Sure. Okay, growing up, I always had this affinity for nature. And I was one of these guys that was out in the woods all the time, you know, getting in trouble, chasing, you know, birds, frogs, snakes, the whole nine yards, you know. And uh, it, it was just the way I grew up. Uh, I guess a lot of kids today aren't able to do what we used to do. Uh, but so, you know, I've always had this affinity for nature and I guess it was in 2004. Well, actually in 2000, yeah, 2004, um, I was raised up as a master Mason. And shortly after that, uh, I was involved with a birding group that was assisting a town put on a migratory bird festival. We were referred to a place called Raven's Ridge to talk to the owner up there about possibly bringing folks up to see some of the birds. So we had gone up there to meet with uh, Charles and obtained his permission to, to scout around to see what kind of birds he had up there. And he had some really interesting high elevation warblers. So he gave us permission to bring a few groups up during this birding festival. Well, as it turns out, you know, Charles resided at the top of a mountain and I lived below him in the valley mm -hmm. at the base of the mountain. And he suggested, he said, Hey, you know, since we're neighbors, you know, why don't you just, you know, come on up tomorrow, you know, just you and me and we'll visit. And that's how it began. Um, All we did, you know, uh, was just walk around the mountain and talk. We looked at birds. We looked at, we discussed plants. I had a pretty good background within, you know, plants to begin with. Though a lot of the things, uh, plants that we were discussing, uh, I already knew, but there was quite a few that I didn't know. And those that I didn't, uh, he would share his knowledge about them with me. Uh, we would look at the rocks and things up there, uh, animal tracks, all kinds of insects, bugs, any kind of a critter that happened to be running around. Right. Um, and, you know, we would just have these conversations, just two guys up on the mountain. We were never on a trail or anything, uh, just walking around, being friends, having discussions about nature because it's what we had in common. And slowly he began to bring me into this shamanistic training, you know, and initially I had no idea what it was, who he was or what he was really doing uh, until I was very well into it. And he would send me out and I wouldn't say they were 
quest, but they were little jobs to go find things and maybe take a picture of it or come back and describe it to him. But to go out and seek and find things on my own based on just a very brief description from him. He would say, well, yeah, there's something down the mountain over there. I need you to go uh, look at it, check on it for me, or maybe bring it back. You know, just something that seemed rather innocuous, you know, no big deal. But as our friendship progressed, this training progressed as well. And then all of a sudden, one day it dawned on me, so there's a little something more going on here. <laughs> <laughs> but we would never talk about it. Uh, it was just something that we did. Hmm. Uh, and that's how it was. I mean, our relationship was fairly unique in that we didn't, oh, I shouldn't say we didn't, we very rarely talked about ourselves personally, uh, either one of us for that matter. Our hmm. whole rapport, our relationship was nature-based. Hmm. And he was teaching me all the time. Every little thing he did was a lesson to be learned, whether it was an introduction to grandmother spider or, you know, going on an actual vis vision quest, which I did several times. Um, and he would test me on things, whether it was remembering some of the, the old stories, uh, being able to identify uh, an animal's track or what it had been eating through its scat the use of the plants, uh, how to identify them through the different seasons, the best time to grow and harvest, uh, looking at the weather, looking at, at the sky, you know, at night and the stars. And his lessons were always communicated with stories, which is what I try to share in the book. Um, so it, it contrasted greatly with the uh, analytical aspect, the detail of an alchemist that you find in the second part of the book, um, and which is very masculine or left brain oriented, because the shamanistic training, as you mentioned, was very right brain, very feminine, very nature based. And that experience helped me a great deal in that previously I had become, I had done very well esoterically as an occultist. Uh, but I got to this plateau. And for any of you out there that have practiced it, you can progress, you can get so far, and you think you're doing great, and you know a whole lot. And you get to this one point, and it seems regardless of what you do, you just can't advance. And it becomes quite frustrating. And I had gotten to that point right after I had become a Mason at about the time that I met Charles. And through the shamanistic training, he was able to help me align my right brain with my left brain. In other words, become, you know, enhance uh, feminine aspects by using nature to provide balance, which was lacking, you know, just being pure occultist hmm. and that's that's the beauty of the whole thing it's called the union of opposites because with the union of opposites whether it if you're familiar with the uh the seven principles um of uh, the chameleon 
Yeah. One of them, which, you know, you've got uh, the uh, mentalism, you've got gender, you've got correspondence, uh, cause and effects, yada, yada. But the whole idea here is to be able to achieve equilibrium, to attain a balance through harmony. So what Charles was teaching me through the shamanic method was to try and find balance, to try and find that harmony, because the spiritual path of a shaman is harmony in nature. Hmm. So he was teaching me to apply that to myself as well. Hmm. So in so doing, I was able to find a greater degree of balance within myself and with what I was doing in my life, because I wasn't just so male-oriented. So detail oriented. I had to broaden my perspective, broaden my mind, broaden my vision to be able to see beyond who I am right here in front of you. He was teaching me how I had to look beyond myself, which to put that in perspective to you, to give it an idea esoterically, is that when we are looking at ourselves as individuals, we're, we're considered as a microcosm, okay? Mm-hmm. He was teaching me to look beyond myself to the broader universe, mm-hmm. a microcosm. So from an occultist perspective, you often hear, you know, a microcosm within the, the macrocosm. So that's what occurred by the melding of both the left and the right brain by being able to understand and use the alchemical aspects which were very detailed and blend that with the feminine aspects the nature based of uh, of shamanism mm. so it provided harmony and also my ability to see beyond myself to see beyond and another esoteric term is to see beyond the veils mm. Hmm. Do you think that he picked up somehow that you were a seeker? Like it, be, like you'd think he had to have some inclin or some idea of it in order to start teaching you these little lessons. I would say so because when you meet someone and have an interaction, you're you you get some impression. Uh an idea, okay, well, who is this person about? Whether it's their way of speaking, it's their uh, way of acting. Uh, but you get some impression about this person. I don't know what it was about, you know, with me, with Charles, other than the first day that I went up there. And again, this is mentioned in, in my book. I was where I had just been raised up about three months before as a Master Mason. And I was wearing a, a Master Mason's ring. And he saw that and he said a little something about it that his father had been a Mason. Mm. Um, but he wasn't. But he said the Masons were good people, but I still had a lot to learn. <laughs> that was my first lesson. That's really cool. Yeah, I love that part of the book. That could, to me, that could be a book in itself. That's really, and he sounds like such a neat guy. Oh, he was. And, uh, it was just a privilege 
to be able to to know him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, he's moved on. Uh, He was, he died in a a car accident back in 06, almost three years after we had met, but he left quite a legacy. And I didn't realize how many, the lives of how many people he touched until we had his memorial service. And I kid you not, I think it was held in November and it was cold and raining and literally hundreds of people showed up. Hmm. Um, and I can tell you many stories about him. Uh, his wife can tell you many, many stories. He was just a very quiet, humble person that he just enjoyed taking care of other people, helping others without the expectation of any acknowledgement or recognition or reward. Hmm. That was just who he was. And, you know, just to be in the presence of someone like that is, it's a privilege. It's very, very special. Hmm. Yeah. That comes through in the book. That, that whole section is very, it's touching. I mean, it's fascinating and interesting, but your affection for him and, it really comes through and it's um it's not just about your it's not just the story of your life and your thoughts but it's kind of like an homage to him it's uh mm-hmm. yeah i, I just thought, i thought that part of the book was um very this is very beautiful writing um you know so something i love in your book is you you talk about i'm this came to mind because you were just talking about his passing away you talk about how we shouldn't as hard as it can be shouldn't really mourn death because people aren't really dying they're they're just like going somewhere else, right? Because life life always continues. And uh, that's obviously a beautiful notion and it, it's a good reminder because it's, you know, it hurts when people that we care about die. <clears throat> but um, I'm curious because you openly talk about, obviously, reincarnation in, in the book. But do you, and you may have mentioned this in the book, I'm sorry if I just didn't pick up on it, but you clearly discuss uh, reincarnation. But do you think it's, like in a like a Buddhist sense, where you can escape the cycle of reincarnation um, through through enough understanding and enlightenment to use the you know simple term for it. I don't know uh, from a Buddhist perspective, but the thing is, is if you can understand uh, the cycles of nature, it requires birth, life, death, and of course rebirth. And Einstein captured that in his uh, theory of general relativity, um, where it stated that energy can neither be created or destroyed. Uh, and then we move into you know the second the law of thermodynamics there with the law of entropy, uh, which I'm not going to go into. Okay, uh, but the whole idea there in the easiest way I can explain it to where it would make sense. Is And I I use this example in the book where if you have a glass of water Mm. and you drop that glass and the glass breaks, well, what becomes of it? As the glass, those shards of glass, do they just disappear? You know, what happens to them? Oh, well, you might pick them up and throw them in the trash and it gets carried off to the landfill or whatever. Ultimately, at some point in time, those glass shards are reconstituted. They're made into something else. Okay. The same thing with the water. 
what happens to the water? Just because you drop the glass, which is the vessel, our bodies, for example, what becomes of the water? Well, the water, you know, it can be absorbed, you know, by the floor, the carpet, uh, the dirt. It could be, you know, you may have taken a few drinks out of it. It might be licked up by your dog. Uh, ultimately, at some point in time, it, get, it too gets recycled, it gets reused, it gets repurposed. And yeah, it might end up going, you know, if you wring out a, a rag with it, after you've sopped up the water, it could end up going down to the sewer system, uh, redistributed or reused for drinking, or it may end up uh, ultimately going out to a stream, to a river, or out to the oceans. But at some point in time, that water gets evaporated and it goes up to the sky. Mm -hmm. And when it does, it comes back down, whether it's as a liquid, whether it's vaporous like a fog or a solid such as ice and snow, it will return to the earth. Mm. So that's what we're looking at here. You know, our body is about 70% water. So when we die, do we really go away? No. We could get buried or we can get cremated. Our body, physical body, is repurposed. But what about our spirit? What about our mind? That's where the energy lies. That too gets repurposed. At some point in time, it goes to the sky. And at some point in time, it's going to return to the earth. Mm. And that's how we can look at you know the cycle of being born, existence, our lives, hmm. and then death. You know, those are just temporary because we get recycled and we will return to the earth. I mean, you could say, well, you know, our, our bodies, our, our, our lives are like an hourglass. And the sands of time, you know, you, you take an hourglass and you, you set it down and you'll see that uh, the sands that are in the top represent, you know, all these moments of the past. And they've, they slowly come down uh, to a choke point where they just barely trickle through and they fall into the abyss of the future. But when the sands are out of that hourglass, the time is up. Mm. And that's how some folks look at, you know, life and death. But it doesn't work like that because nature is an ongoing cycle. What nature does is it will repurpose. It'll take that hourglass and just flip it back over and the time starts all again. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Do you uh, have you ever studied Emanuel Swedenborg at all? I'm familiar with him. Yeah. He, he just he has an interesting perspective on it that we you you don't always reincarnate back into this world. You can reincarnate reincarnate into like a higher spiritual realm, which would be like the like the realm of the angels, basically. And um, but there, the reason why I asked that initial question is because Kurt Vonnegut, in one of his writings, uh, issued a, uh, a a perspective that I found kind of depressing. As somebody, I'm, I'm very grateful for life, and I haven't I haven't had an easy life. I understand life is hard, and I've seen the horrible side of life. I'm still grateful for life. I'm grateful for my friends and family. I think it's a it's a beautiful thing. And uh, I am blessed to have been able to enjoy this journey. But uh, Kurt Vonnegut had a different perspective because Kurt was a very pessimistic, cynical guy. And 
he said that he found the idea. He was hilarious, but he was a very cynical guy. And um, he found the idea of eternity to be like horrible. Like he was like, can I just sleep forever? Like, can I just never come back here? And I actually, um, a friend of a friend a couple weeks ago said, expressed the same opinion. He said, coming back for eternity sounds exhausting to me. I'd rather just go away. And um, to me, that's kind of a depressing perspective, but I can understand. I, I can see where people are coming from because life can be extremely uh, difficult. And so I actually forget initially what my question was going to be, but it was looping back to what to what we were just talking about with the, with the reincarnation. Oh, it was about escaping the cycle of reincarnation because some people view the cycle of reincarnation as kind of like a prison. And... Um, it's something yeah, to get I, I, I don't, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's one of my favorite authors. Oh, really? Really? Uh, I, yeah. I cut my teeth on him when I was really young. He and quite a few others. Um, Herman has, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Narcissus. All those Goldman. guys. Yeah. yeah Narcissus and Goldman, uh, Steppenwolf, the whole mm-hmm. nine yards, you know. But yeah, I, I loved uh, Kurt Vonnegut, his character, uh, Kilgore Trout. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think I don't recall the title of the book off the top of my head, but memory seems to uh, suggest that it had to do with Kilgore Trout being placed in an alien zoo or something along that line, <laughs> <laughs> which you know isn't all that surprising. Uh, I mean, who's to say that you know if uh, were repurposed or reincarnated, however you could like to turn it. Who's to say that, you know, we're going to return to this earth, that mm. it's not someplace else or somewhere else, you know, whether it's a different dimension, uh, a, a, you know, different planet, different galaxy, whatever, uh, you know, who's to say, right. You know, for, for all we know, you know, there's, with regard to the folks that have already cycled through here and they may look at our life here on earth as hell, <laughs> you know, it's, right. you know, um, <laughs> you know, it's a matter of perspective. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. I agree with that. And that's why I can sympathize with people of that perspective. Although I find it kind of sad because it's like, man, you know, all the people that you all know, your friends and family, you don't, you're not grateful that you got to spend time with them. You know, I mean, I don't know. It seems pretty, it seems like pretty a gift to me, but um, yeah, you know, I recall a scene in the movie Seven Years in Tibet with Brad Pitt, and they were excavating a site. I forget what he was having them build, but the Buddhist monks were out there and they were a little upset, and he couldn't understand why they weren't working. And it turns out that they, at, in their digging, they had encountered earthworms. So they were very digging very carefully and taking each earthworm very <laughs> carefully and respectfully and relocating it. That's so, amazing. Yeah, because you know they and what they told him is well, you don't know if this earthworm is your grandmother or your grandfather or an ancestor. You must respect them. Hmm. You know? And show them kindness and not just chop them up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean that's it'd be profoundly difficult to function that way, but it's uh that's a really beautiful notion. Then he comes in and like, can we reincarnate as plants? Like I've actually asked myself that sometimes. Well, can I come back as a plant? 
Because then if we're then even eating plants, we're still, we're, we're killing the potentially killing reincarnated uh, souls, you know? Well, right. You know, so here, here's a question for you. Uh, most folks get hung up on the idea. We could say reincarnation, uh, but we can also say someone is reborn or, you know, and what's the difference? You know, if, you know, rebirth um, or resurrected, I should say, mm. the two terms I'm looking at are rebirth and resurrection. Right. Uh, a rebirth isn't necessarily coming back as the same person or the same form of being that we are today. That's a misconception. You know, you can come back as, as we were talking, you can back as an earthworm. You might come back as a human. Uh, you could come back as an elephant or a plant, a rock for that matter. You know, that's what rebirth means. Uh, resurrection. That's something entirely different. Right. Resurrection means that this body, this entity has been resuscitated. In other words, it's had life bred, uh, breathe, or yeah, breathe back into it. It's like if you drown, you know, someone comes along and pulls you out and they do the uh, whatever it's called on you. Uh, you're resuscitated. You get all that bad water out and you're brought back to life. Hmm. Even though you may have died, you haven't been reborn. You are given a second chance. You are resuscitated. Hmm. Hmm. So there, there's a a lot of confusion between those two terms. Right. You know, reincarnation, I think, is an extension of rebirth because it does not define what you are reborn as or reincarnate reincarnated as hmm yeah it's funny i just had flashed this memory this bob dylan interview that i read a couple years ago where he <laughs> the there somebody had found some old biker named bob dylan literally named bob dylan who had died in like i think the 40s or the 50s or something and dylan was playing with the idea that he was a trans he was the transmogrification of this guy in the the reporter had asked if he was the, like the transmutation or something. And Dylan in his typical manner is like lecturing this guy about the difference between transmogrification and transmutation. And it just really, yeah. cracked, it really cracked me up, man. I thought it was funny. <laughs> Cause you know, he always likes to toy with reporters and it's, it was amusing to me, but um, so we're coming up on the end of the hour, Richard, this has been awesome. I so appreciate this time. The uh, question I'd really like to ask before we sign off, except, of course, I'll ask for whatever. Uh, it's always good to end with a plug. So I'll ask whatever other projects you have in, going. But something I do want to ask is everybody who's in this weird tribe of seekers, these people who are drawn to look for these answers that um, most people don't care about. Uh, as we all know, it's just something that's just in you, right? It's just like very young. You just feel this call. And so as somebody who has invested so much time and energy into exploring this and has brought this wisdom back for us, which uh, I personally appreciate. 
if you're talking to a younger person uh, who's earlier on the journey, what would you say to them as, as they're beginning to, to explore these strange questions? Um, what would you say to them as advice to maybe uh, expedite their journey or to just give them some, uh, an emotional oasis as they, as they go into this weird wilderness? Okay, well, I can answer that and allude to the book at the same time. Uh, the book is broke out, broke it out in three parts, bell, book, and candle. In the bell, we are answering the call as an initiate, the young person, the fool, okay, who decides he's going to set out on this path as an adventure. And he really doesn't know much. He's oblivious to what's going on. And if you're familiar with the tarot, it's the zero card, mm -hmm. okay, uh, which is never ending. So, you know, the fool, the young person uh, is answering the call, answering the bell to go out and to begin his seeking, whether it's a quixotic quest or not. Well, that's always to be determined. Uh, as he progresses down this road, it begins to narrow and the path just increasingly narrows as he seeks knowledge. It becomes more and more difficult to find. The road becomes rougher. It becomes treacherous. Uh, he encounters folks along the way that don't like what he has learned thus far. Uh, they don't like what he's he's doing going out and asking questions and is searching for knowledge so the young man has you know been reading a lot not just a book but many books in his quest for knowledge and he's learned so far that he must be circumspect he has to be very cautious with whom he shares his knowledge with and whom he discusses mm -hmm. these things with. So you begin as a fool, you oblivious to all the dangers, but as you progress down this narrowing road, you learn pretty quickly that, well, I need to pay attention. I need to be careful because incidents happen, you know, and if you're not careful, you know, they could end your life one way or another. But for those that continue along this ever-narrowing, increasingly difficult, steep, and rocky path up to the top of the mountain, um, you'll find that there's a hermit up there holding a lantern up high, the number nine card in the tarot deck. And he's just trying to shine a light, you know, for these young men that are, are coming along the path, regardless of where they're at along the path, just to show a light saying, Hey, you know, here's the top of the mountain. You know, it's the mountain of knowledge. And the light that he's showing is the wisdom that can be attained. Once you get there, it's, you know, the flower of wisdom that Charles taught me to seek up on the mountain. Man, Richard, that was beautiful, man. I can't believe you just improv that. <laughs> that was like <laughs> that was like the most amazing answer that anybody could have given in that precise moment. That was incredible. So 
We're well, coming at you. the end of the hour. So um, can you share what other projects you would have, anything related to the book? You're going to be doing any kind of signings or anything like that, but also any other work that you have going on? Well, I've, I've got sh- signings coming up. Um, I'm always available for interviews, uh, for book signings. If you need a speaker for an event, uh, they can either contact you or get a hold of me. And I think you've got my contact information. Yes, my sir. website's under construction. Hopefully it will be up on July 1st, but we'll see. Um, as far as other projects, yeah, I'm working on something that is pretty revolution and pretty massive. Um, we touched on it earlier. I'm digging really deep into what the philosopher's stone really is. In the alchemical search for the unified field, I'm only touching on one aspect of it. But if you're looking at it from the perspective of a geometric model using platonic solids, which I discussed in the paper, um, you can also find that it will provide a potentially, okay, uh, my quantum physics are right, a vehicle for travel in the space-time continuum. And beyond that, it appears to be a mathematical uh, model for virology, for a biophagous organism, which were the primary source for DNA replication within the primordial seas. In other words, if you take that and you look at these platonic solemns in concert with the uh, oh, oblong square that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. you'll find that you know it, it could be used as a vehicle for panspermia. Uh, in other words, for feeding life on distant and distant planets. Hmm. Um, And the interesting thing about that is that's what's happened here on earth. Uh, It's very clear. People say, Oh, what about life, you know, beyond earth? Well, if you talk to any scientist, you'll find out that a lot of the meteorite activity or the asteroid activity that enters into the earth has these biophagous organisms on them. Hmm. And that's that they're bringing it to earth, you know, uh, and that's how life essentially got started. So with that in mind, you know, if, if these are an organism, a biological organism, that in itself tells us that, yes, there is life somewhere beyond us. Hmm, right. And the question is, is, was earth, you know, did earth experience, uh, panspermia? Are we a result of that over time or not? Um, but setting that project aside, I'm um, also looking at the Knights Templar, uh, their involvement with the, the quest for uh, the treasure of uh, Solomon's Temple, uh, Ark of the Covenant. Uh, that is proving to be very interesting. And I'll leave you with one little teaser of a question to look at. The question, if you want to understand the uh, modus operandi of the Knights Templar, you have to be able to question, answer the question, who fused the pains really was? Hmm. That's a question that has not been touched on in anything that I've read. Hmm. You just can't accept what's out there because it's all regurgitated and coffee stained from somewhere else 
and it's unsourced. Hmm. So if you can determine who Hughes DePayne's really was, then you will understand the Templars. Man, I, I will so that, be eagerly awaiting that that uh, that work, man. And uh, actually, one quick thing: the to the the viewers, everything will be linked in the description box below this video to go to go to get the book, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the paper that you shared with me is that publicly available anywhere? Uh, no, it's not. Okay, okay. Uh, that will be incorporated up as part of you know a book down the road. Okay, but if you have folks that you feel using your discretion and judgment might benefit from it. Uh, you can share it, uh, okay. but I just don't want to, you know, plaster it out there in a public forum right now. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's good to know. That's really good to know because it, it's pretty high level stuff. Right. Yeah. No, it's I love it. It's fascinating. <laughs> I'll be read. I've read it a couple of times. I'll be digging in more this weekend. It's good stuff. But uh, Mary Richards, thank you so much for your time, man. I love the book. I appreciate what you've put out there and the knowledge that you've shared. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again. I hope we can do this again. Well, I, it would be, uh, you know, an honor and pleasure to be able to come back and, and visit with you and your audience in the future. Awesome, man. Thank you, Richard. And Ari Kretz. <laughs>